Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from sunny, not quite warm Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are joined today from Washington, D.C. by Rosa Brooks, who holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she's also the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are you today, Rosa? I'm good, David, and it's very nice of you to tell people that I'm the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes, but I have yet to meet anyone who cares, and people are just, for some reason, not interested in that. I tell them that people get bored, they actually fall asleep while I'm talking to them. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but if I were a center or an institute, (laughs) I would be extremely interested. Also in Washington, D.C., we've got Ed Luce, who is the U.S. national editor and a columnist at the Financial Times. How are you today, Ed? Enjoying a warmer spring than you've got there in Cambridge, I imagine. And probably always will be warmer, uh, which is one of the things Washington's got going for it. And I'm thinking that in Chicago, Illinois, we are joined by Ambassador Evo Dalder, former U.S. permanent representative to NATO and currently president of the Chicago Council for Global Affairs. How are you, Evo? It's great. It's sunny. We're supposed to hit 70 before, I think, snow at the end of the week. So we're going to just take all of what we got this week. Sounds fantastic. So I'd like to, you know, one of the things we got to talk about is Ukraine because it's evolving. The news of the past 24 hours has included a a brief flurry of uh, concern that perhaps chemical weapons had been used 
in a very contained incident in eastern Ukraine uh, that's being investigated now. And Vladimir Putin has made his first comments since withdrawing from Ukraine's West and withdrawing from around Kyiv. And in those comments, which were basically the kind of avalanche of lies and rationalizations you'd expect, he said this was all because of Ukraine and Russia really didn't have any choice. Negotiations are going nowhere. And uh, they're going to they're going to soldier on with what I don't believe they're calling a special operation any longer, which essentially is moving troops that had been around Kiev eastward and going after Donetsk and Luhansk and Mariupol in an effort to expand their holdings in that part of Ukraine, things they had seized in 2014. And so that's kind of where we stand today. They, they, the U.S. National Security Advisor, I think yesterday, said uh, that Jake Sullivan that the U.S. would be you know, fine with uh, European countries providing MiGs to Ukraine. Our only objection was the Polish idea of putting them through the U.S. air base in Germany. And within 24 hours, the government of Slovakia stepped up and said, OK, we've got MiG-29s that we can provide to them. And apparently the U.S. said, well, we have no objection to that. So we'll see what that means. So I'm going to turn to each of you and give you your chance at, you know, sort of a minute or two minute long take of where you think things stand. And then I've got some questions. Evo, where, where do you think things stand right now? We currently really have ended, I think, what can be called phase two of the war, and we're in phase three. So phase one was the uh, 24 to 72 hour takeover of Ukraine that the uh, Russians had planned. They were just going to walk in. They had forces in Ukraine and and, uh, in Kyiv and other places that were going to take out the government and everything would be hunky-dory. It would be a cakewalk. That's the only word they didn't use, but it's a uh, it would have been just the same as what we did in 2003 with Iraq. So that's gone. That was gone within a day when they couldn't even get the, the main uh, airport to the west of um, Kyiv. Uh, second phase was, well, in that case, we'll just take it by force. Major military operation uh, that was in the north of, um, of Kyiv uh, got stuck there for a long time and ultimately was beaten back by, uh, by the Ukrainians. And so they have now moved out of that. There are also signs that they are starting to lose in the south, not around Mariupol, but more a little west of, uh, of the Crimea, where um, they're being beaten back uh, in, and may well lose the one city they uh, were able to, to capture early on in the war, Kershaw which would uh, be a major thing. And, and so now phase three is this, as you said, it's the consolidation of trying to get, uh, retain and, and expand the, the uh, territory that they've had since 2014, early 2015. Land bridge to Crimea, perhaps all of the administrative boundaries of, the, of Donetsk and Luhansk. Question about what happens to Kharkiv, which is the second largest city, very hard to, uh, to, to take a hold of. So that's the Russian move. The counter move is, well, since the Ukrainians have been doing so well, maybe we should get them more weapons and more capabilities. Just as you mentioned, not just MiG-29s, the Czechs sent tanks, the, uh, the Germans are, are thinking of sending tanks. The UK is sending surface to uh, anti-ship missiles that can go after the ships in the, Baltic, in the Black Sea. 
we are uh, helping, we the U.S. are helping lots of these governments to get Soviet-era equipment into Ukraine, both physically into Ukraine and also to incentivize them to give those capabilities. So, for example, we deployed a Patriot air defense system in Slovakia to allow the Slovaks to send in an S-300 air defense system really to help the, 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 Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainians to do something about their, uh, their airspace. The real question is, what is this battle over the next month or two months going to be? The Ukrainians going to be strong enough not only to hold off the Russians, but push them back? Or are the Russians going to be strong enough to either encircle or, or make major damage of the kind that we had expected to occur six weeks ago and it didn't occur? I think all bets are off. I have no idea how this is going to go. My suspicion is that Russian mor- uh, morale is so low that it's going to be very hard for them to make uh, real progress. But on the other hand, brutality is something that the Russians have used in wars past. They have employed it in wars in the current one, and they may, uh, whether it's chemical weapons or other capabilities, try to do it again this time in order to break through. So that's where I think we are. Well, you know, Rosa was a high-level policy planner at the Defense Department, so she knows exactly where this is going to go. Where's that, Rosa? Probably nowhere good. I think that Evo is right. None of us really have the slightest idea. There, there are all kinds of possibilities. Unfortunately, virtually none of them are good, or rather there's one good possibility that I, I think unfortunately is still very low likelihood, right? So here's the one good possibility. The one good possibility is that things drag on. Russia continues to face serious losses, heavy losses of both troops and equipment Domestic dissatisfaction against Putin within Russia grows both because of casualties and because of the economic pain Russia is feeling as a result of Western sanctions. Putin is unable to achieve his aims in Ukraine, has to retreat and or enraged oligarchs stage a coup against Putin because they don't want to continue to tolerate the levels of loss, humiliation and economic suffering. That, that would be the, the good outcome. I think, unfortunately, it's not terribly likely. I don't think it's impossible. Anything could happen, as we said, and we don't know. But I I suspect, unfortunately, it's not terribly likely. I think the more likely outcomes are sort of variants of quagmire and variants of of horror, horror, that even if the Ukrainians, with uh, assistance in terms of, of weapons and supplies and humanitarian aid from the West, even if Ukraine continues to more or less hold off the Russians from any sort of complete victory, you know, manages to keep them even from permanently having a land bridge between uh, Russia and Crimea, uh, manages to keep them from taking Odessa, et cetera, and other key cities. Even if that happens, human suffering continues. The Russians do have a lot of people. They may not be very good soldiers. You know, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel already in terms of trained military personnel. But even if they start throwing, you know, untrained bodies and continue to take significant casualties, you know, the, the suffering can go on pretty much indefinitely. I think, I think we're Americans, we're optimists, we're by nature, we tend to think, oh, this is terrible, surely it can't go on. And we're always surprised when terrible things do go on and on and on much, much longer than we ever expected them to, and indeed often get worse. I think that's the sort of medium likely scenario is, is quagmire and there's no quick end and people continue to suffer. I think the, the other possible outcome 
still fairly likely is that eventually uh, Russia is successful in achieving, if not all of their aims, achieving enough of their aims, taking enough of the pieces of the country that they really want to take, that they then withdraw, declare victory, you know, announce that they have shown those Ukrainians who's really boss uh, and so forth. And they do retreat back to Russia. Uh, but the, you know, the new, uh, to call it Cold War makes it sound too stable, you know, but the new uh, hot tensions between the West and Russia continue and continue to be very scary. And then, of course, there's the still unlikely but totally catastrophic scenario in which Putin feels sufficiently threatened that he decides that it's a good time to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And let's not even talk about that. So I'll, I'll just stop right there. I can always count on you to take us <laughs> to the to the break of that kind of sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, well, we, maybe we'll circle back to that. Ed. You know, I think that the assumption that economic sanctions, even if they are tightened, which they should be, particularly on the oil and gas front, is going to topple Putin is probably a little bit Panglossian. Um, I think it's very unlikely. I think that the history of dictators are sad, you know, being the most obvious one in relation to Putin is that if the autocrat is prepared to tighten things, tighten a screw sufficiently, then he can last a long, long, long time indefinitely. Think of Cuba and Castro. So I, I think that that's unlikely. What I think the Russian people probably won't tolerate as much as, um, as economic sanctions, um, as long as they don't starve, is loss of life on, on a large scale. You know, this isn't the Russia of the siege of Stalingrad. That, that was a long time ago. This is a Russia where people at least expect to live. And if the reports, the estimates of Russia having lost 15 to 20,000 troops, which seems high, but, you know, there's some pretty credible sources saying it is in that ballpark. If they're correct, or even if they're halfway correct, this is a really high rate of loss. And, uh, and we're talking, you know, just, just about deaths, not about wounded and not about captured. If, if the Ukrainians can continue to inflict the kind of damage on the Russian military in the north, well, in the east, that they've been inflicting everywhere in the last seven weeks, then I'm not sure that that endgame where Russia just sort of brutally through loss of life, amassing of equipment, appointing a commander, making some adjustments, can then hold on to the Donbass regions and Mariupol, and assuming that falls in the land bridge to Crimea. I'm not sure even that is sustainable. From what I understand, you need a five to one advantage as an invading force. They haven't got anything like the troops um, to have a five to one advantage against the Ukrainians. And you need something like a 22 1,000 civilians, 20 troops to 1,000 civilians to pacify an occupied area. Again, they're nowhere near that level of troops. So just as Russia's freed up its forces to focus on the east, or mostly focus on the east, so is Ukraine. And we are, even though it's dilatory and maybe not adequate, we are supplying Ukraine with a lot of, a lot of arms. There are tanks coming in galore as well as anti-missile web rocket pro propelled launchers, anti-ship missiles. There's going to be MiGs at some point. I think it's just a question of when. The, the Russians still don't have full air superiority. Planes are still coming down. So I have to say, I'm not sure that even the sort of much more modest aims that Putin has set for himself, uh, and assuming 
that that were all he was aiming for, which I very much doubt. And I think the Ukrainians very much doubt that they would see his success in the East as then a new springboard to a renewed attack on Kyiv, etc. I don't think he can do that. Um, And I say this with no military knowledge whatsoever. So take it with a bucket of salt. But just those ratios and the human cost of the casualty rate they're sustaining and Ukraine's ability to, to keep that going makes me very skeptical that Russia can turn this around. Interesting. So let me let me tr- turn the subject slightly westward for a second. First of all, I want to note to everybody, uh, uh, of course, Ed on a regular basis has terrific columns on these things. Evo had a column in The Economist in which he talked about the fact that the people who said this was due to NATO expansion were not only wrong, we were probably wrong not to expand more than we did. And uh, because Evo is so influential, within hours of this article appearing, Finland and Sweden immediately um, <laughs> began to make very serious moves towards joining NATO, which is a very big deal. I think people had hoped Finland would be part of it for something like the past 75 years, and, 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 and that has not been the case. Sweden seemed like an impossibility. So that's a that's a big deal. And, and yesterday, the uh, Secretary General of NATO did a long interview in which he said, look, we're making our plans now. And things have fundamentally changed. We used to have a few troops on the eastern frontier for primarily symbolic reasons. Our new plans are going to call for a full military force there in order to be defensive and in anticipating what might happen if there were a full-scale Russian invasion. And so this is a massive, significant redeployment, change in strategic priorities, could lead to permanent bases, could lead to a lot of other big changes. And, 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 and I would argue, Evo, that this is the biggest security reset that Europe has seen since the end of of the Cold War. And frankly, since we haven't really been sure how to deal with that for much of the past 30 years, it may be even second to the the actual formation of NATO in terms of its consequences. What do you think? Well, certainly uh, the the biggest since the end of the Cold War, and I think we can debate the degree to which uh, it it's different from what happened in the in the I guess the early 1950s when the treaty that uh, set up NATO became a, an organization after the Korean War. But a lot of people have been arguing that it's all NATO's fault, and if, uh, if but for NATO not not expanding into the east, the Russians would have been uh, would have been fine. Uh, uh, it's it's a Russian talking point. Let's be very clear: it's a talking point the Russians are still using. I'm not surprised the Russian are using. I, I get pretty upset when other people, uh, after all we have seen, continue to argue that this in any way is about NATO. But here's the irony of all ironies. And I think you, you, you mentioned it. You know, two countries that had no intention, zero intention of joining NATO, Finland and Sweden, are going to join NATO. And they're going to do it very quickly, much quicker than I think even people five, four or five weeks thought. Perhaps as soon as the summit, uh, the NATO summit in Madrid, at the end of June, they had big discussions about this in uh, the foreign ministers' meeting last week. 
in which they talked about how do you accelerate uh, the entry point for these countries, because of course you need to ratify a, a, an amendment to the NATO treaty, but it needs to be ratified by all members to make sure that this happens. But how do you do that very quickly? And what is the interim security uh, guarantees that you give to countries like Sweden and Finland? And that's a discussion that we are engaged in with uh, the Finns and the Swedes directly on a bilateral basis, as well as in a multilateral basis. So that's one big thing. The second is this forward deployment of major troops from the Baltics to the Black Sea. So this is the new, if there's an iron curtain coming up, it's, it's that from the Baltics to the Black Sea. The three, uh, all the NATO members that now exist already have a battalion size, combat battalion size of multinational troops. That was a doubling that happened a couple of weeks ago into four new countries, in addition to the Balts and the Poles that have long had it. But we're going to plus that up very significantly. Instead of hundreds or, or low thousands, we're going to talk about tens of thousands of troops around in these bases. And then finally, I think we're, going, we're on the verge of a debate about what to do with Ukraine. No matter what happens on the military side, if there is the attrition war or if, the, if there's a ceasefire, whatever, Ukraine has made it very clear they need security guarantees. Last I looked, there's, a, there's an organization that does that really well. It's called NATO. It's, it's one of the reasons the war took place in Ukraine and not in the Baltic states. And so I think there's a real serious discussion that needs to be started here in Washington, in Brussels, in Berlin, in London, in Paris, not very necessary in, 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 in other places. But when are we going to bring Ukraine into NATO? We're already bringing Ukraine into the European Union, or at least the European Union is bringing the Ukrainians into the European Union, which, by the way, has a security guarantee, not that different from NATO's security guarantee. And so I think if Putin thought this was about NATO and we were coming and, and NATO was coming too close to his borders, well, thank you very much. We've just made sure that that is indeed what will happen because of the stupidity or brutality, probably, of his, uh, of his actions in the last seven weeks. I think you can say stupidity as well as brutality. They're not mutually exclusive. And Rosa, in this particular case, when you look at it, you know, at the beginning of this, many of us were saying Putin is miscalculated. He's miscalculated about the resolve of NATO, he's miscalculated about the resolve of Ukraine, et cetera. He underestimated Zelensky, perhaps he underestimated Biden and others, you know, including the leadership of the EU and, and NATO. But I think we're far enough along into this, and you see the likelihood of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, NATO changing its deployment, and, and the Russians, as Ed was pointing out, really suffering massive losses in troops and materiel. They put 75% of their military capability in, into this, and they're down, you know, the estimates 10%, 20%, 30% in terms of what they've got available to them right now. This is a big blunder. It's not a miscalculation. It's a huge setback for Russia. And, you know, it doesn't look even regardless of which of the scenarios you describe, it doesn't really look like uh, Putin's got a way to turn this into a win, right? Wrong. What do you think? I don't think there's any way for Putin to turn it into a win. I think there are certainly ways for Putin to continue to inflict substantial pain, both on Ukrainians and ultimately on, on others. I mean, I do continue to worry as the holder of the thorny crown of entropy. Uh, I, do, I do continue to worry that a, a humiliated Putin 
is potentially scarier than a successful Putin in certain ways, you know, because I do think that that's the possibility that I said I didn't want to talk about, which is that that Putin decides that tactical nuclear weapons strike is, a, is the Hail Mary pass in Ukraine. He doesn't win anything in the sense that he's done something horrible. He's a global pariah. He's responsible for the deaths of probably scores of thousands up to hundreds of thousands or more. Um, he's responsible for breaking a streak that has lasted for, uh, you know, what is it, 70, 70 years, almost 70, whatever it is, I can't even add or subtract anymore, of not using nuclear weapons. Um, but I, I don't think that there's, I don't think we should assume it couldn't happen. And, and in fact, I think we have to, I, I, I do still think it's unlikely. I think it's about as unlikely as, as you know, Russians rising up against Putin and toppling him in a color revolution and within Russia. But I don't think either of those things are impossible. And I, I certainly hope uh, and, I, and I expect that Biden administration officials um, uh, and the intelligence community and the Pentagon, uh, and the State Department are all trying to come up with plans that take into account both of those possibilities, unlikely as they are. I don't think we can afford not to. The you know, I, I don't I don't see it. I, as I said earlier, I just don't there, there's not a it's very unlikely that there is a good outcome to all of this. You know, it's already just bad and it's irredeemably bad. Um, the question is just how much worse it gets. The only thing I quibble going back to Evo's comments about the debate about, you know, did the push for NATO expansion? Was it too much? Was it too fast? Blah, 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 blah. I actually, in some ways, think when people even raise that subject, we should not engage in the discussion because I, because it's such a red herring, right? It's irrelevant. You know, even if even if you said absolutely, I think NATO's expansion, the pace of NATO's expansion, pushed Putin, made him crazier. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, even if that was one hundred percent correct, uh, the okay, I think I'll go invade a country, you know, causing massive, massive civilian suffering just because I feel a little anxious about my borders, like not okay, regardless, right? And and I almost feel like in, engaging in that debate somehow implies that if only somebody could prove that NATO expansion was indeed what triggered this for Putin, and he was right to feel threatened, that therefore it's all okay, because it's it's not okay regardless. I don't, I don't think that's a disagreement with you, Evo. I just I just wouldn't even give it the time of day. I just say this is this is we have moved on. This is not relevant. There is no possible either geopolitical or moral excuse for what Russia's doing at this point. No doubt. And um, uh, briefly before the break, another interesting subtext of this, and it's something you've talked about in uh, one of your columns that I read, is that there has been a kind of a shift within NATO and EU leadership where you've got Eastern European countries really leaning into this, saying, I told you so, taking a much more active role in this thing, whether it's the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Baltics, and a new kind of pressure and view being made of the positions of uh, the Germans, you know, and on some other issues, the, the British and the French. But to just today, the, the German president wanted to go to Ukraine to to visit, as a number of European leaders have done. And the, the Ukrainians said, uh, no. We, you know, you've been too close to the Russians and you haven't been supportive enough and uh, we just won't be seeing you. 
and and you know, I thought that was an amazing kind of a rebuke. Um, Plus, they said we're a little busy right now. Yeah, right. We're washing our hair, and we just don't have time for your visit. And you know, all of a sudden, you start to see, you know, well, maybe maybe the Germans will give up, you know, some send them some old old model tanks. And at the same time, I, I even saw some folks, you know, posing that. This is partially Merkel's fault because she was too soft on the Russian. But but it, it it is an interesting shift in the way the, the, the European sort of mechanisms are working. I was wondering what you thought of that, Ed. Yeah, look, I've long thought that Merkel's biggest blunder um, in her long chancellorship was to shut down the nuclear sector with not just, you know, clean energy implications, but massive geopolitical implications. And if she hadn't done that after Fukushima, after the tsunami in Japan, then we wouldn't be having this debate about um, Germany's reliance upon Nord Stream 1 and the, the, the gas and oil that it gets from, from Russia. There is a little bit of a uh, almost Rumsfeldian division beginning to appear again between uh, sort of old and new Europe. You mentioned the Baltics, Poland, and others closer to Russia being much more gung-ho, much more, uh, I mean, Lithuania has really been out there as well as Poland, but much more willing to supply arms, um, um, to, to supply them yesterday, and to criticize the laggards, including Germany directly, plus Britain. And so you've got the sort of Iraq, uh, Iraq war coalition, uh, um, sort of slightly unfortunate coincidence. And then not just Germany, but France has actually been uh, not quite as forward-leaning as it might have been um, in terms of military supplies to Ukraine. It's not just Germany we're talking about here. France could is the most resourced military power in Europe, and it could be doing more. Um, part of that might be to do with the election. Part of that might be to do with Macron's hopes, continued hopes of being um, playing some kind of mediating role here. But it's the the appearance of European divisions a, a little bit more obvious now than they would have been a couple of weeks ago. I very much hope that Annalena Baerbock, the German, the green German foreign minister, who's much more hawkish than Olaf Scholz, the social democratic chancellor, is going to win this debate. And it's very notable to see that she's saying it would it would be immoral, it would be inexcusable for us not to step up at that point. You know, this is a coalition. Schultz needs the Greens to stay in the coalition. The Greens have slaughtered a lot of sacred cows recently, and they're now back to being pro-nuclear, which, given the origins of the German Green Party, is quite astonishing. So it's clear that they have a feeling of deep principled motivation here. And Baerbock is no accident. She's saying this kind of thing in public. I'll just say one other thing in relation to Evo's very, very good piece in, in The Economist. And I fully agree with your argument that this is a complete red herring and a Russian talking point, the NATO justification. I'll say that, you know, we were talking before um, this war and at some point during, uh, since it started, of the Finlandization uh, of, of Ukraine. Now, of course, we're talking about the NATOization of Finland. And that, that is an extraordinary thing to, to have happened. I suspect we are going to get back on to the Finlandization of Ukraine, though, at some point. And the one thing I would question, you know far better than me, Eva, but the one thing I would question is whether you would have the required NATO unanimity for all the reasons that I was laying out at the beginning of this answer, 
for Ukraine to actually join NATO. I'm a bit more skeptical of that. But let, let us take a, a brief break here, as we normally do, and uh, say goodbye to the folks from the general public who have been listening and say, if you want to listen to all of our broadcasts, all you have to do is go and become a member. It's kind of less than the price of a latte a month, although I've never had a latte. I'm told it's less than the price of a latte per month. I've never actually had a cup of coffee. That's a subject for a different podcast, but we encourage you to go and join and be a member and get the benefit of all the bonus content that you get as a, as a member. We've uh, we've enjoyed the fastest growth we've ever had. And in the many years we've been doing this in the course of the past several months, because of conversations like this, and, and we hope that'll continue and you'll be part of it. So uh, for those of you in the general public who are leaving, thanks. And we'll see you again soon. For those of you who are members, hang on. We'll be back in a moment. 